Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now, and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls, and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close, you can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls. I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like him. I just have Yanni use his. Then I don't have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. All right, first thing I want to do is, um, Garrett, uh, act like I, act like I all of a sudden just fell over dead. And, and it was just silence. And you had to be like, and you all of a sudden had to step into the role of being the host. The reason I'm doing this is because this is the first one Giannis Boutelis, I think this is the first Meat Eater podcast that Giannis Boutelis was not here. Because now he's now got a crippled up knee. He feels that he's going to get better. I've written him off. It just seems to me once someone's knee goes bad, it's just, they're done. So, here I am. I, I've fallen over dead. What would you, how would you proceed? I'd say um, moment of silence for Yanni's knee. And then I'd ask Rick. Uh, man, I couldn't do it. I just You wouldn't just jump into like. No, yeah, you'd make mind. me do it, Garrett? I'm totally yeah. unqualified. So, but it the, began. The conversation began then. That that was the voice of uh, of Garrett Smith, and then and then as though dealing poker, the next uh, Corey, and just introduce say say a few things about yourself. My name's Corey Kazmarek, sometimes Kutchmark, sometimes Kutchmarek. I like it, yeah, depending yeah. on how Russian they're feeling or Polish. Polish. Or? So uh, yeah, this is my uh, I'd say seventh meat eater as far as working with these guys as a cameraman. But uh, tell yeah, them some of the I other cameraman that. stuff you do. Um, I do this show called Mountain Man, where you follow around, or Mountain Men, excuse me, where we follow around uh, guys living up in the woods, up in the mountains, killing animals for food. I do snowboard, uh, extreme sport filming, some documentaries here and there, commercial work. You worked on that, movie, that new movie, Unbranded. Unbranded, yeah. We took 16 wild Mustangs from uh, Mexico all the way up to Canada. It took us five and a half months. I rode about a thousand miles of the ride did you really yeah yeah learned a lot about horses and you were riding 
I rode, yeah, a thousand. Were you filming we, from the? Were you, were you trying to film from the horse? We did. We did film uh, with a little DSLR camera off the horse, and then we'd get off the horse, run ahead about until we were out of breath, you know, set up a shot, and they ride by, and then we have to catch up with them. And we you know we did that for three thousand miles, me and my buddy Phil Baraboo. And uh, no, it was, a, it was a good success. You guys got to check it out. It's on Netflix right now. Yeah, Phil I, Phil Baraboo filmed three meat eater shows. He did. Sorry, Mo. No, I've I've seen it. I've oh, seen yeah. it on Netflix, and uh, I haven't seen it yet. But oh, I've yeah. seen the the card. It got up like there, heavy man. treatment on Netflix. I'm excited to see it they now, pushing, man. Yeah. I was. I've been. I've had it queued up a couple times, and and like kind of. You can't go wrong with else. Cowboys. But um, now I'm I'm going home directly to watch yeah. it, man. That's Does the nice. movie? Does it take a pro wild horse or or or? or or does it, does it try to stay like how does it fall on the political not the political but you know like the there's a debate about wild horses yeah, yeah. where some people feel like we should treat them like a native wild animal and some people feel like it's feral livestock we're right down that middle line there they explain they they explain that debate yeah, everyone yeah gets their you know fair share of as far as like debating their side and uh, i think we did a good job at keeping it right down the middle explain both sides of the story and in the end, you know, you you kind of make up the decision about, you know, I guess there is no end for the horse. Like there is, it's an open-ended story, really. Mm-hmm. I think we need to hunt them, yeah, and eat them. Now, speaking of that, we're up on Prince Wales Island right now. I want to get back I mean, to that. You know, I, I definitely want to get back to that. It's not like oh, this world. I, I want to get back to that. That's real important that you just said that. Uh, we were talking. We're on about Prince Wales Island. We were just out running shrimp traps tonight, and Mo is naming off a number of places where he's eaten horse. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and enjoyed it. Yeah. I haven't introduced. Well, you Well, I was so. getting to that, but no. I was just kind of kind of ease into it. You know, bridging off. The, I'm an aggressive host. It's, it's called. I'm an aggressive <laughs> host. <laughs> it's, it's called a segue in editing. I was kind of trying to build a nice natural one. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Please. Um. Yeah, I'm uh, Morgan or Mo Fallon, um, and uh, I've been what we, we the first time we worked together was almost eight years ago now uh, on a number of little pilots. As you were was I kinda, married or not married? That's how I would know when it was. You were married. You oh, were so all eight I, years, so eight years ago. Yeah, you were always yeah. married. Um, but we did a number of little pilots together as we kind of geared up for figuring out what would be a show, you know, kind of based on, I guess, your philosophies and lifestyle and, you know, stuff. And um, and then did a show for Travel Channel together, um, for which I was the director of photography, <clears throat> and then moved on to start doing these, uh, the Meat Eater shows which I was originally the director of photography on. Then I kind of segued into directing, which was the beginning of me starting to direct things, um, which is what I've continued on doing, moving from cinematography to directing. So I've been a cinematographer for 15 years. Yeah, when you and, uh, when you did, because you worked on, when you were young, like yeah. just starting out, you worked on Ali. Big feature films, yeah. Yeah, yeah I was Michael Mann's assistant for two years. Um, right out of uh, school, which was a kind of an amazing experience. 
And he made uh, like uh, Miami Vice. Yeah, I mean, he yeah he made Miami Ali. Vice the TV show, but he also made. I mean, his great films are like Last of the Mohicans, which is like a masterpiece. Heat, Heat, Heat. I think is it's it's also a masterpiece. Yeah, dude. Um, Inside uh, the Insider. Mm-hmm. That's it's also a masterpiece. Uh, you know, I mean, dude, Collateral is a good film. Uh, maybe not a masterpiece, but. You still talk to him? You know, I ran into him at the Directors Guild in L.A. uh, like a few months ago at a screening for The Revenant. Um, It was really interesting. I hadn't seen him in almost 15 years. Uh, uh, I was a a 24-year-old kid coming out of film school and worked for, you know, directly for one of the biggest directors in the world. I, I went from like, you know, living in a crappy dorm room to like flying on a private jet, you know, to Africa yeah, yeah. with him. It was a, it was a real head trip. Um, how'd that and, happen? Not to interrupt. But. No, you know, it was interesting. I, I like, I got a two day job as a PA to fill in for someone in his office. Explain what that means. It's a production assistant job. It's like entry level in the, uh, in the, in film and television production as production assistant. Um, can I can I interrupt real quick? Yeah, we have a role that we made up called the WPA, right? Wilderness yeah. Wilderness Production Assistant. Yeah, that would be like that would be a, a level above you know a normal PA because it requires some additional skills that are somewhat esoteric. You know, for me it was like, can you make coffee and and clean up a like literally make coffee? coffee. Yeah, that would be a job. Yeah, make yeah, exactly. Yeah, make coffee the way Michael likes coffee made. <laughs> 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 Which trust me is a high pressure situation. If you if you think it's not a high pressure situation, you don't know Michael so when Mann. So you're doing that. Are you thinking, "Oh yeah, I'll wind up like directing shows and I mean, does it just seem like Definitely. how in the world do but you But I thought it, I thought I, I thought I'd end up directing feature films. I I really thought I'd go down um like a narrative and feature film path, yeah. you know? Um, but the more and more, uh, the more I was exposed to like documentary filmmaking, the more I realized that it really fits my, you know, you know, I guess my God given talents, you know, my particular set of, of like inherent skills, you know, um, better than, you know, looking at a script and, and, making a a feature film which is very like a very i mean look it's an art form so i'm not uh, you know i'm not talking down on it at all but it's um it's a very contrived uh art you know it's and um i don't think that was the particularly right for me in the end but what was very right was you know documentary which is you exist in the moment you know, and you use your instinct and your skills, uh, you know, and your problem solving on a moment to moment basis, which, uh, for me, was like very appealing because you're figuring out the story as you go along, you now, know, tell the other, sh- tell the show you worked on for a long time. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. You- oh yeah. Yeah. Biggest loot. Biggest loser. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, for how many years did you do that? I did. Uh, I did three years of Biggest Loser, ninety six episodes. And then talk about what you've been doing in the three and a half years since you since you uh, 
since because we worked together for years. I mean, together, yeah. together for years. Yeah. I mean, we're still in communication all the time, but we worked together, together for years, and then yeah. we, we're still we still work with the same company. Yes, but now you do. Now I, you well, direct episodes of yeah. So I direct a I direct a couple of different shows now. Um, uh, a show called Mind of a Chef, which is based on I mean. You know, it is what it is. It's, you know, eight episode seasons of based on a chef. So we'll pick a chef and like kind of dissect their life, their philosophies. And um, it, that's a really, that's a, a very, very fun show to work on because it's like total creative freedom. We can look at, you know, we can look at a chef and, and come up with all kinds of wild ways to tell their story. Um, then I also... I'm a cinematographer and director on Anthony Bourdain, Parts Unknown, which is a show on CNN, which is like uh, a food, travel, culture, kind of political, kind of everything else kind of show, you know, um, which is a little different in that it's a host-based show, you know, so it's, you know, it's one host all the time, Anthony Bourdain, you know, and it's really his looking at the world through his filter, you know. Um, How many of those do you do every year? You know, I used to shoot, when I was just shooting them, uh, I would shoot eight or nine a year. And now that I'm directing them, that really limits the amount you can get out. So I do two, maybe I'll do three next year directing, and then I'll probably shoot two of them as well. Um, Not directing. Not directing, but as a cinematographer. But that's about as much time as I can get in, you know. Because I mean, directing your, you know, your your two and a half months in or two months in pre production, just sitting at a computer, you know. Then you're ten, eleven, twelve days in the field filming, and then you're, you know, another six to eight weeks or so sitting in front of a computer again as you edit the, you know, as you edit the show. Yeah, it's engrossing. So, yeah, it's engrossing, man. It's engrossing. They're little films, you know. But, uh, yeah, I mean, really a very rewarding show as well. Um, so, yeah, and then, you know, hopefully more of these now, man. Yeah, <laughs> you know, Modus, as, Modus, as, as did, his, settled, Modus you know? did his first, uh, that was that your first uh, guesting? Yeah, man. Guesting that, on, a, know, on a show? Yeah, it's funny. After all this time, it's the first time I have... Uh, a, really been on camera for the duration of a show you know and felt like kind of what it's like to stand on the other side and have someone like point a camera at you and be like okay so now say something cool yeah and and try to come you know try to come up with interesting you know shit that you think people would be you know would want to hear and you're forced to like you have to appreciate the importance of coming up with something because you deal with the other end of trying to put the stuff together later yeah, you realize it's like no good when you bomb out. Yeah, definitely. You get into some weird, you know, in, in my position here, you get into some weird like Heisenberg's principle of uncertainty kind of stuff. Where like I'm, I'm kind of, I realize as I'm doing this, I'm kind of tainting the process. I mean, if you're like going to talk about like pure documentary stuff, just the fact that I have so much inside knowledge, I'm like. I was aware as we went through this process that I was like clearly manipulating some things oh, yeah, from the yeah. inside, you're you know, about, because I know about the later product. Yeah, I know how it'll cut together and how it'll all work, yeah. and you know, 
um, the hardest thing with shows like this, which is that, you know, it's very, very difficult to get the amount of ideas and material that you want to get across to tell a story into 22 minutes. You know, oh, yeah. it's, it is a real uh, difficult process, you know. When we sit around, well, let me come back to that because I, I want to keep. Yeah. I want to keep. Uh, yeah. No, I'm going to say what I was going to say real quick because I'll forget. When we sit around, we'll be like, yeah, we want to, like, we're coming up, we want to do an episode about dads, right? Yeah. Um, Giannis, uh, his dad, you know, brought him up hunting and has a lot of really interesting ideas about what he thought his kids would get out of going to hunting camp and being exposed to this sort of cycle of there's a handful of guys that hang out and they meet every year and, and sort of how you interact and how you kind of come together and, and fulfill, you know, and pursue goals and, and come into this, this camp and assign people like different tasks and make the whole thing work smoothly and get along well and bury differences and, and know what subjects are sort of just not good to bring up and just how to hang out. Yeah. You know, and he, he felt that it was like a great gift to his, to his son to bring him in that world we've had these conversations so we're like okay we should do a episode about dads you know and Giannis's dad's always dreamed of going on a moose hunt so we're gonna take him on a moose hunt cool yeah. and um and in the end you know we keep talking about like the dad's thing right like Giannis's dad the dad's yeah. thing to us it feels that way when you watch it they'll be like these guys were hunting moose and there was a this and there was that and there was a bear and yeah. oh yeah someone's dad was there and it'll yeah. be like but you, but it really feels like you're going to. You really feels like you want to make a comment about dads. Definitely, yeah. Because it's so. It winds up being in this kind of thing where there's all this like uncertainty and action stuff, and you know, shooting guns and chopping yeah. animals up and shit. Like the thing you were wanting to talk about sometimes only winds up being like a hint. Yeah, but if I can, if I can interject real quickly before you you move on to one of the reasons why that's so difficult to do is that if you if you were to make a show where you're like, I want to talk about dads, and you just you came out of the gate just swinging and and like wanted to relay all your information and all your thoughts and feelings about dads and all the stuff you want to get across in a show, so it would feel so phony and preachy and and you know up its own ass that it wouldn't work. There's a way that when you go into the edit that you have to divulge a story that you know, is, is kind to the audience, you know, mm-hmm. that allows the audience to get a sense of tone and place and feel a, a sense that they're, they're involved in the story, that they have some stake um, before you're able to sell high concept ideas, you know? And so you realize like in a 22 minute show, by the time you've set all that stuff up, you know, and you've brought them into the experience, and you want to now divulge your information you like you have very little time to yeah. do that and then tell the rest of the story points that get you from a to b like you got to then actually kill a moose and then butcher a moose and then you know have a meal out of that moose it it just becomes that the time to get ideas across is so whittled down that what you end up with is like well okay what's the most concentrated salient point that I can interject at this one particular place where I can get an idea in? Um, because that's about my only yeah, shot to have it, it become the show about dads. Exactly. I think of it yeah. as being 
somewhere between 90 10 and 80 20. Like we just wanted to, we did a thing we wanted about to do right. about Aldo Leopold, okay? When it's all said and done, it'll be probably about if you if you broke out the minutes or the seconds or whatever, yeah. maybe about 10%. Yeah. About the one thing we talked about going into it. Yeah. That's that sounds about right. But that's the I mean, those are like the shackles of the 22 minute, you know, um format. It just Well, we're it, saying 22 minutes, we're talking about a 30 minute television. Show. That's right. Like once With you cut out the ads, yeah. you, you got 22 yeah. minutes, you know. You know, so that's like a standard form for the television industry is like 20, you know, a half hour 22, uh, a one hour 44, you know. Um, you find that like a 44 minute show seems like it should be harder to make and it's like way, way easier to make a good one, you know, um, because you actually have some breathing room and some time that you can, you know, that you can get your ideas across and really like structure something that is interesting for people to watch, takes them, brings them into the story and the experience and is like coherent, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, so anyways, you know, but, uh, but I like them personally. I like the 22s because they're, they're very challenging, you know, they're challenging. And when you get a good one, you like feel real proud of that. And, and it's a nice digestible size uh, show for people to watch. You know? I used to hate it, but now I like it. Yeah, I, I think it's better in a lot of ways when you can do it well. You know. Anyways, Rick. Yeah, Rick, my name is Rick Smith. I uh, I'm I'm not a hunter, but I uh, filmed a lot of wildlife stuff and started uh, writing and kind of helping produce some of the Apex Predator episodes with Remy. Uh, who is like the master hunter. Mm-hmm. So it was good. Uh, I I always knew I wanted to get Is that out. your first time being out hunting? Yeah. Yeah, I always felt some of the wildlife stuff that I, I was doing was like hunting with a camera. You know, a lot of grizzly bear stuff where you were stalking and getting close, but it was just with a, with a camera in some ways. So it felt pretty natural to do it. Uh, but I really respected the... ZBZ who who makes all this stuff uh, with no reservations. So as I was coming up as a uh, in in film school and figuring out what I wanted to do, I I saw no reservations and I was like, that's the kind of stuff I wanted wanted to make stylistic, beautiful, but it felt very authentic. And uh, so I was super excited to to start working on Apex, and then this is my second mediator show and uh, yeah, we did we did old mexico and yeah it was awesome now what what so you went to film school yeah my and then own, how, how did you get into did you go into it being like that you wanted to film wildlife uh i mean i didn't I, I really had no idea i was my undergraduate degree was in biology and i knew i didn't want to be a biologist as a did you I, know what that meant being a biologist yeah like no, you just. Can't. I mean, that it winds up being like a university thing, right? Well, that's well. I I did research, and you know, people, all the professors I spoke with were like, ah, it's not really. They weren't. Nobody seemed very enthused about what they were doing. I think that's just a matter of old people just talking about work. Period. But I wasn't convinced that I was going to be able to do what I wanted to do, which is largely go on a lot of adventures. So I thought, ah, documentary film. I like film. I like film, film and stuff. I had no idea what that meant. And I went to a grad program in Bozeman. Uh, it's an MFA in science and natural history documentary film. And I had no idea what that meant. I made Palm some. Palm it back up. It's a what? 
It's a it's like science and documentary film are rolled into Yeah, so the premise was to take people trained in science and train them in filmmaking. Was it like you and another guy? No, it's I mean No, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. There's like a lot of people in Well, there? in Bozeman, it's like yeah, there's all these folks that are I mean, it's kind of taken over the industry at least in some some aspects of it. A lot of guys working for the BBC. Yeah, that makes win, sense. Winning some big awards, producing stuff for Nat Geo. A lot of folks work for NASA. I mean, it's, but it's the skill set is kind of, you know, um, it's not uh, ex- exclusive. You're trained as a scientist, and then you have to learn like storytelling. So it takes a little while to figure it out. But um, yeah, it's a weird program, but I wanted to be in Bozeman, and I, yeah, I didn't know what else to do. So. So break it down how you were just recently doing a job, but your job was just go out and collect footage of animals doing animal shit. Yeah. With I mean, just like... Behavior, yeah. So, I mean, a big part... Like of, a checklist? Well, a big part of the natural history filmmaking deal is you're you're having to tell stories with with just animals. There's no host. There's no nothing. Blue, it's they call it blue chip wildlife, you know, television or film. And yeah, you're you're shooting behavior and the progression, whether it be over the course of a season, but these animals' lives in a way that people can watch it and actually care. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you're out hunting, you start to if you watch an animal long enough, you start to understand their story. Well, you often catch them at the tail end of their life too. That's exactly right. Um, but you're. You know, when you have hours and hours of watching an animal, well, the story unfolds slowly and over the whole season. But to do it in a 22-minute show or a, you know, 44, min- 44 minutes, you have to be very, uh, I guess, precise about the imagery you get that tells the story of the yeah. animals that are out there. Well, on, okay, you know when you're watching a shitty wildlife documentary? Yeah. And they'll show, like, a rabbit, just looking like a rabbit, and then they show a raptor. Yeah, and then they show a rabbit, and then they show a raptor, and then they show a rabbit, and then they show a raptor, and you never see the raptor and the rabbit together. And then all of a sudden, there's a raptor that maybe is the same one or maybe a different one eating some nondescript hunk of meat on a fence pole. Right. And they build it out as though the raptor, like total artifice, right? So yeah. They're, they're so cons- do, you do, do you make those things? Well, we're trying not to, but uh, the show that I'm working on is for the Smithsonian Channel. Um, and in the grand scheme of like natural history, natural history films that the BBC makes, really expensive. A lot of days in the field, so it's 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 a time intensive, money intensive thing to make a good natural history show. Um, the show I'm working on doesn't have a huge budget, but we're trying to not make it suck. So it's it so does you're trying take, to get both things in the same shot. You're trying to be just like we're talking about this show. Uh, you're trying to be authentic, and the audiences can. They can read bullshit. Yes. Um, and there's maybe a percentage of the population that doesn't care one way or another. But good good documentary film has a, a level of, of authenticity to it. So the audience, at the end of the day, knows if, you're getting, if they're getting fucked with. You know, if, they're, if something's happening, like if there's the rabbit and the raptor and they never actually interact. But you can, yeah, you can construct... You can construct the narrative in a way that doesn't uh, reflect the actuality of what happened. 
and I mean that's just the reality of, of well, making you, documentaries, right? In some but ways. But what are you beginning with? Like, what is your when you, when you're doing a job like that? When you wake up in the morning, are you just a slave to whatever happens well, that day, just, or do you just, have a very no, precise just, thing? Just you're like after? the shows that you decide you want to make about dads. Like, I want to, you know, we have a premise that we want to go shoot, and you're aware of the premise. Yeah, you know gotcha. the overall structure. But in the end, like the the year of a bear, let's say, right, right. But you're sort of the the story is going to reveal itself in whatever actually happens to some degree. You can try to, I don't know, uh, enable a certain situation to occur or be there at a, the right time in the right place. But more or less, uh, you get what you get out there. Um, so. And what percent of your work you do in, in national parks and what I percent mean, you do out of national parks? Yeah, so I I mean, I do, I don't do a ton of just pure natural history stuff. Most of my work has been host-based adventure filmmaking where I'm following a host, yeah. much like yourself, doing something. And and it's kind of a hybrid of pure natural history with, with some, you know, with, a, with a, some humans in there. Um, but most of it, you know, any good wildlife sequence, most of it takes place uh, in situations where the animals are habituated. This doesn't mean they're not wild places, but they're used to seeing people. Yeah. You go to a place where certain animals are not used to seeing you, and they're just gonna ru- they're just gonna run away. They're just gonna be like, or I mean, if it's super novel, maybe they'll like come close to you. But more or less, you have to be in a place. Where it's like a, a weird congregation, where your chances of seeing something are pretty good, and the distances required, like, I mean, to get a decent shot, even with a huge telephoto lens, less than a hundred yards. Gotcha. So that's that's close when it comes to these animals that don't want to be around you. So, but when that guy finally got that shot of the snow leopard in, mm-hmm. is it yeah. what's the program? Planet Earth. That was Planet Earth. I, yeah. I heard. That he was like a thousand yards, like some absurd he, distance away. He wa- he was really far, but that was a place that was like a known place. That, but he definitely spent a lot of time in a blind. Yeah, but he spent like three weeks in a yeah, blind for that shot. For that, you know, for that shot. But I know another guy that's working on a show. Uh, I think it's funded by the, uh, the Chinese, but I I think it's for Disney Nature, um, and he got some amazing stuff in in Tibet. Snow um, leopards. Snow leopards. Like, way, way close. And it was largely because they had a, a, a set of, you know, individual cats that were okay with their presence. And they never put the stock on. They never, like, threatened them because the cats know they're there. And they, I mean, they got. I think they got some amazing stuff. So it's really finding individuals or populations that allow you to get close enough to tell the story um, that that otherwise mostly can't be told. Most wild animals don't want anything to do with people. Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in Wisconsin. Now, last year at youth turkey season, it rained and snowed the whole time. This year at youth turkey season, it was in the 70s and even up to 80. So me and my kids are pouring it to it. And after a while, I realized they didn't drink anything all day, and they haven't drank anything all day. Well, that's why it's important to get hydrated and have something you're going to like to help you, encourage you to get hydrated. doesn't matter. Outdoor events, turkey hunting, playing sports, beach days, mountain adventures. Summer requires extraordinary hydration that's built for everyday dehydrating moments. 
with three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients in a single stick, it's clear why Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. Tear, pour, live more. One stick plus 16 ounces of water hydrates better than water alone. I'll say that again. Hydrates better than water alone. Turn your ordinary water into extraordinary hydration with Liquid IV. Get 20% off your first order of Liquid IV when you go to liquidiv.com and you use code MEATEATER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop better hydration today using promo code MEATEATER at liquidiv.com. Get incredible deals on premium cuts from ButcherBox. Do you like free protein for a whole year? Well, deals this good are hard to come by at the grocery store. I, at home, well, I got two freezers, but you know what I'm saying. I like to have a freezer stocked full of stuff. I like feeling prepared, man. When I come home and it's time to make dinner, I like to go in. I got all my proteins lined up in there. Just makes me feel good about stuff. And with ButcherBox, you'll always be prepared with meat in the freezer. It means fewer trips to the grocery store. Delivered right to your doorstep with free shipping always. You get a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value. You'll get exclusive deals as a member, too. Sign up at ButcherBox.com slash MeatEater and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free and every order for a year. So every box you get has that in it free for a year. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com slash MeatEater. Make sure you use code MeatEater to choose your free for a year offer plus $20 off your first order. This festival and concert season will be all about the boots and Tacovas is your stop before attending your next concert. Tacovas has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. And Tacovas has first wear comfort. Meaning you put them on, they feel great. Little or no break-in, period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Plus, their direct-to-consumer pricing keeps value on your feet and money in your pocket. Just ask my buddy Chili, who's been slipping around in his Tacova boots, talking about how great he feels in them. He loves them. Yeah, Steve, they're very comfortable. They're very fashionable. And I enjoy wearing mine around the office and anywhere I go around Bozeman. Stop by your local Tacovas store, have a complimentary drink, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and a friendly staff are at your service. Many stores have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it to a store, just visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. And find your new favorite pair of boots today. So I was talking to these guys at down in Fort Bragg where the uh, I can't remember what one of the one one of the special forces groups is based out of Fort Bragg. I can't remember what number. And I, I went down there to hang out and these guys told me a story that one night they were in a pass in Afghanistan, staking out a pass. Did I tell you this? I think you might have, but I'll That's tell you a good story. I'll yeah. Tell, tell Lottie. Tell they catch some guys, they catch some suspected Taliban guys coming through the pass. And they start shooting at him, and one of them's carrying a big recoilless rifle. And they wing the guy, and he drops the rifle. And then his his friends drag him back down out of sight. And the guy sat there all night with a thermal scope, you know, watching 
to so he could hit whoever came out to get that rifle because he knew someone was probably going to come get that rifle. And as he's watching that night, a snow leopard came out and smelled the blood where that guy got hit. And he saw it. It's awesome. Yeah. A lot of people will never lay, myself included, will never lay eyes on one of those no, things. Just cat, cats. Peter out. Matheson wrote a whole damn book and never saw one. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's a good book, though. No, it's like <laughs> mountain lions out, you know, around Bozeman. or There was one at MSU, Montana State University. There was one spotted on campus at like 2 in the morning. I got a te- text alert, like, watch out for the mountain lion. But, oh, really? But there's cats out there, and you'll never, you, you know, you'll never see them. And uh, they're there watching you, and they're and they're mostly, you know, n- never going to do anything. They don't they don't eat people. Otherwise, they would eat people, right? I mean, they kill like a deer a week or something. I thought like they that. they ate hikers in L.A. Oh, I'm, I'm, <laughs> you have a better chance of winning, I, winning the lottery and getting <laughs> struck. I, by I, I don't. It's like I'm not saying this as crit- introduce yourself, Eric. Now that now that, <laughs> now that you've ruined the entire. Conversation. <laughs> <laughs> My name is uh, Eric Osterholm. I'm a producer and director at the same company uh, that uh, Mo works at, um, and that your shows, you know, produce on Zero Point Zero. And uh, yeah, mostly have done travel, adventure, production. Yeah, all uh, around the damn world. All around the damn world, yeah. Lots of crazy stories from different corners, remote places. But uh, my first hunt was actually or that I was anywhere near was with you five or six years ago, that doll sheep hunt. Is that right? Yeah. Never been on a hunt before. Yeah. And then before then and after then, you worked for other – Yeah, I bounced places. around a bit, yeah. I like freelance lifestyle. Freelance lifestyle, yeah, which I think, uh, you know, Corey and Rick here also uh, enjoy and Mo has in the past, bouncing between uh, – you know, different shows, different adventures uh, in different corners of the world. I lived in Alaska for a little bit doing a rescue show, which was pretty wild. Rescued a couple hunters in, like, remote spots. Really? Yeah. There was, what like, was a, their problem? There, I just remember there was uh, – it's, it's all kind of blended together. I do remember there was, like, an 82-year-old guy oh. who was just out on a remote island, you know, and, you know, off on his own, had hunted all his life and was, you know, ended up having to call in – to be rescued, but really didn't actually want to be rescued. He was just tough as nails and kind of just wanted to like a resupply of some water and some food so he could keep hunting. So it was, yeah, some interesting, uh, yeah, some interesting experience. You called 911? No, yeah. no, no, no. Let's not get carried away. Yeah. <laughs> water. Some water. <laughs> some bobo bars. <laughs> <laughs> what was he hunting for? Uh, I don't know. It was, uh, it was a really long time ago. Uh, but I imagine probably. It was up near Sitka, uh, so I don't know what's on the islands outside of Sitka. Deer, deer, yeah, bear. probably deer, yeah, probably deer, yeah. But yeah, everything from rescue shows to been down to Antarctica a couple times, spent some time in Afghanistan, lots of different places. Lots of Africa. Yeah, lots of Africa, yeah. Yeah, I think I think the biggest takeaway is uh, is something that we were talking about earlier today, which is just perspective. You know, you gain so much perspective on different people's, you know, where they came from, their perceptions, and uh, it helps you not to jump, jump basically to conclusions because everyone has a completely different paradigm. You know, you realize very quickly when you step outside of your own neck of the woods, yeah, so to yeah. speak. Yeah, it's a little shocking. Yeah, yeah, surprising. Uh, and you now you're full time. You're full timer. Yeah, yeah. Very recently, full time at CPZ, and uh, and just moved to Montana. 
which is exciting. I was living in, uh, reluctantly living in Manhattan for a long time. I left uh, Colorado. There aren't as many trees or mountains for me in Manhattan, so I was kind of running around like a nutcase. I think people saw me and my bike pulling my skis like behind me through Manhattan, like kicking off yellow cabs quite often or like ice climbing stuff on my backpack. And Heading where? Heading like either to get to a train or a plane to like escape. Oh, to go. Yeah, yeah to escape out. Yeah. I remember one time walking in New York and I'd found a a deer skull in Wyoming and gave it to Chris and Lydia who own 0.0 or, you know, two of the, yeah, the, the founders. And uh, a while later they pointed out to me that there's these little pyramids of dust underneath the skull all the time. And I realized there's still some dermifted beetles or like some carrion beetles living in the skull and they were still active. And I was like, well, I'm going to take it home and clean it. So I'm walking. I didn't have anything to put in it. So I'm just walking down into the subway station with a deer head, <laughs> a skull with antlers on it, some dried hair and stuff on it still. This guy sees it and he's so insistent that I sell it to him that he comes into my, he like gets into my subway car with me. Just, he's flabbergasted by this thing. Any amount of money is fine, you know? And I'm, and I'm trying to explain to him, like, listen, you don't understand. The, the nation is awash in these things. You just don't know because of where you live. <laughs> that they're laying on the side of the road. This is not like, like, <laughs> this seems very unusual. You know, it seems like highly unusual. It's just not. You can, you don't need to give me hundreds. Of, you can go get a, you know, a forky deer antler. <laughs> it's a big world out there, buddy, and it's full of deer skulls. <laughs> did you did you want to take the money at one moment? Or just... Here's the thing, I would have in a second, but I'd already given it to Chris and Lady. Right. They loved it, but they just didn't want it. And their office was like little like he didn't even know. He said every time I pick it up, there's like little sawdusty things underneath it, and they're still in there eating the whatever out of there so i couldn't then go like oh hey you know i i know you want me to take it home and and clean it but i sold it to a guy in the subway <laughs> here's your cut <laughs> but yeah perspective now dirt you uh dirt myth explain again why they why not why they call you but explain dirt myth again i feel like this is my favorite story in the world i had a uh, that's the name of my uh photography company and it came from, I had a speech impediment when I was young, and I'd introduce myself as Dirt Myth, Garrett Smith. Because you couldn't say Garrett Smith. Yeah, I said Dirt Myth, a- amongst other wrong words, which still happens. I still make up words occasionally, but not as bad. So nobody's called him Dirt. Yeah. It's now, a compliment. Garrett, Garrett does more on this production than I, he does everything. He's running the podcast machine right now. He's, like, mixing the audio. He's a I'm horse just pretending. He's a horse in the field. He yeah. He must he must have had what a hundred pound pack with a camera with sticks on your shoulder the whole time. For, for I don't days. know, but I was saved by Rick and Eric when I about went down the mountain with that weight. That was scary. Yeah, that was a close call. True. Like we joke about like oh you know it was pretty s- sketchy terrain or tough yeah. terrain. I mean there was a point that Garrett fell, and if he didn't stop tipping over with a big pack on, he would have died. Oh no, you lost were, a leg. I mean you were. You were inches away from the tipping point from which you would not have regained control. 
Yeah, you yeah, wouldn't have walked. And out it of was, there. A, it was. I don't want to say you would have died. It was significant consequences. Yeah, so. yeah you think Yanni's got problems? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're joking about uh, about dirt self-arresting with a hunk of his own leg bone. <laughs> that was about it. This yeah. is classic. This is this is Garrett. Just in general, is everything's okay all the time, even if yeah. it's not not. As he's falling, he says, I'm okay. <laughs> As of right now. I'm good. Before, I'm good. before I go over this little cliff. Don't, yeah, don't rip my new pants. Yeah. Still still in motion. Yeah, and then you're like, watch the pants. Yeah, someone's holding on to your pants to keep you from pitching over a 30-foot drop. <laughs> but, you know, everybody knows the midnight ride of Paul Revere. There was the midnight, the midnight hike of uh, Dirt yeah, Mill. That was, that was heroic, man. What kind of, but not really because... I messed up. Yeah. Yeah, I forgot. No. Later, when you explained what you were seeing, I realized you were... That was a heroic effort, man. It all gets... No matter whether you messed up or not. GPS on the way down. Yeah. A lot. Yeah, that was a a heroic effort. No GPS hiking out at night in... This is pretty... This is rough terrain in parts... In a in a really in a sick bu- yeah in a bu- in a bushwhack sense if yeah. you if you rated bushwhacks and there is a bushwhack rating scale a bushwhack yeah. rating scale I'm interested in, in looking at it was explained yeah. to me but it would have to be on a one to ten this is like a eight bushwhack yeah yeah yeah, yeah definitely because sure. there's no devil's club there's, there's no devil's, devil's club, club. pushes up into the nine <laughs> that's right nine or ten yeah no, I've, yeah I've been up that up, the, up that hill and that's <laughs> that is a nine or ten man. <laughs> But no, no Devil's Club, club. but it is—I mean, that's sick. That's significant. It's just like, man. Yeah, it's and to come down in the dark at night with only the range of view of your headlamp um, alone—I think the choice to go down the drainage, yeah, which we initially were like, "Uh-oh, he's going down the drainage." That was a good move. Again, though, teamwork. Like, I had communication with you guys. Yeah, we had radio. And then once I knew that that would empty close, it yeah. was an easy call. So that was yeah, yeah, You were, that you was were moving effort. with, like, fear motivating you because it oh, took yeah. us about two and a half <laughs> going down with heavy, I mean, heavy packs. Two and a half hours, yeah. 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 You ripped down there. You got down I was, pretty quick. Man, I was nervous. Well, why I was did you like, come back up, man? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wanted the, there was bourbon down here. I was like, whatever it <laughs> is that takes. What happened, is that no. what happened all that? <laughs> I was hoping you'd bring the bourbon back up. I, I was thought about, about it. <laughs> Dude, I want to address the, the fish shack used to have such an ample. The alcohol section used to run from that first aid kit over to that really old bottle of separated honey. And it was just like, it was four and a half feet of liquor. Yeah. It's down to two Bacardi bottles that Empty. have. <laughs> the, you know the dimple on the bottom of the bottle? The Bacardi doesn't come up to the bottom of the dimple. And then I think a Jägermeister's. <laughs> I think a Jägermeister's been here. I think since we bought this place. <laughs> well, who drinks Jägermeister, I man? I mean, <laughs> someone thought it was a good idea to bring up. That way, you guaranteed to always have a little bit of liquor. Uh, Mo, explain why we went up the mountain. Why we went up the mountain? Yeah, just talk about what we were doing this particular time. Yeah, Mo, we were on this deer, was a damn you know, deer hunt. Yeah, this was a um, was my second deer hunt. Uh. Yeah, I didn't say first year, huh? No, I know. Oh, okay. Just trying to tell the story, man. But I, I like to start with a solid, you know. <laughs> be, be authentic. I have, a, I, have a, I have a way of divulging I, the story. Listen, man, I, I, don't like why, I, don't I don't know why I'm, I don't know why I'm directing you, man. <laughs> I guess it's just like a chance I have to direct you, and I, and I just can't turn it down. Anyway. No, that's fine. Yeah, you know. Um, it, 
Yeah, it was my second deer hunt. Um, but more importantly than any of that, it was this is the this is the spot of kind of our first real, um, you know, our first real like endeavor in this in this field um, or in this genre like together. You know, working. We had done we had done some of the pilots, like I said, ramping up, but those were really just like dicking around, getting to know each other, kind of ramping up, figuring out what a show would be. We came here six years ago on the Travel Channel show, uh, Wild Within, on the first episode, um, and it was the first time that like all the gears were kind of engaged, and we were really going after the kind of show that we ultimately wanted to make. Um, and that it, people would see, and it, yeah, and it, yeah, and it would be kind of out there in the public eye, and you, you know, like, you know, it was interesting that you you have to also kind of take into consideration the context at that time, like six years ago, with what was what was available on TV, but on mainstream television, people weren't doing content about hunting. You know, even at that time, I know there were executives within the network there that were leery about what we're doing and we're constantly trying to put their like shine on it. Well, like, well, it's not a hunting show. And I'd be like, well, <laughs> sure there's a lot of hunting. <laughs> really? Because we're doing a lot of hunting. So, you know, um, but I think people were in and, and I understand their position. I, I, you know, I think it was people were very leery of like how that would be accepted on like a mainstream network, you know. Um, but besides that, it was the first time that we had the funding and in the crew and the implementation and the technology and kind of a little bit of the know-how to go out and kind of figure out what you know how would we do this in an authentic way um, that 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 wouldn't either you know ruin um, the standards that we hope to achieve in terms of television production, but also wouldn't you know ruin the hunt. Um, which is which is a delicate balance, you know. I mean, cameras are difficult animals in in of themselves. They're very finicky and they require a lot of attention, you know, and a lot of input. And I mean, a lot just of, to keep them working. It, well, no, not just not even just to keep them working, but to keep you know to keep like myself as a camera operator or a DP at that time in a position that I would be getting a shot that would be oh, actually telling yeah, a story. Yeah. You know what I mean? So meaning to say what I'm what I'm getting at is a very complex way of saying that like it's hard not to spook animals because you know we want to tell the story in a way that's the most conducive to like divulging a story and building a story and making it entertaining and exciting and like we're good at that. I know exactly where I would ideally like to be, you know, on various shots um and by shots, I mean camera shots, you know, to to document a hunt. That is not necessarily conducive to what, what you know, actually stocking up on an animal requires, you know. So there was a lot of, there was a lot of learning in that. Um, you know, but like I said, it was, a, you know, that was the full time, first time we were full up and running and going. And it was a very, uh, like a very, I think a very exciting time in all of our lives because we were really figuring out and writing the genre like as we went along. Because no one had really done a show, I think, like this. And 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 by the way, I don't, I, I don't know enough of 
the um I don't know enough of what was out there at the time in the hunting world mm-hmm. to to be a hundred percent correct about this. So there may be people who are like, Well, I you know, you're not taking into consideration this show or that show or the work of this person or that person. But in my perception and to the extent that I know Well, you're familiar with from network television at I'm, the time. I'm, yeah. I'm familiar with network television for sure. But um what I'm trying to say is that I don't I don't know that there was a hunting show that was doing kind of what we were trying to do at that time. We had talked a lot then about like um, hunting shows as being made by hunters who were interested in picking up a camera and like documenting what they were seeing. Um, but didn't necessarily have like the television savvy to be like, well, here's how you articulate like a complex narrative with dramatic highs and lows and, you know, tell a beautiful and like cinematic story that has some like gravitas, you know, um, we were like, we were TV folks that didn't know anything about hunting really didn't particularly know anything about being out of doors, you know, um, who had become, by virtue of like meeting you and getting to understand your world, like interested in making shows about hunting and about this world and about, you know, how you live. Um, and that took, that was like a steep learning curve when those worlds came together because you don't, you know, it's not like, you know, in a normal job, like when I'm working biggest loser, like, I show up at 11 o'clock in the morning at call time, hit the burrito truck, you know, for craft service and <laughs> go get my camera ready. And like, there's a whole list of shots and just stuff to accomplish. This was like really writing the entire textbook as we went along. Cause we didn't know how a show like this would work. And it was very exciting to pull uh, a crew up that mountain, pull a crew back down that mountain, have a successful hunt, you know, um, and figure out that a lot of us just had no idea what we were doing outside. But what I'm really the most proud of in, in the whole process is that we were able to go in and like not know what we were doing and really, you know, make some mistakes, um, on that first show, even though we walked away with a pretty successful show, I, I still really like that episode. Oh yeah, man. I thought it turned out. Yeah. Um, to then be able to like reassess, figure out like what we needed to tweak, how we needed to do things and be a little bit better the next time and like be a little bit better the next time, be a little bit better the next time to the point where we actually we refined it into a show that like really worked, man, where we weren't we were not a a footprint that was affecting the quality of like the hunts. We understood how to act around animals, we understood how to um you know, how to make the, the, like the hunting endeavor successful. But at the same time, we didn't sacrifice like the beauty and the dynamics of like the show and what we wanted to achieve in television. And, and that was like, that's a really, that was a really tricky balance. Like for reasons I said before about where the shot kind of wants to be, you know? Yeah. I want to, I want to jump in because that's something that even just now on we just did you know yeah. we just filmed a hunt right now yeah the, it's this it's one of the primary things i think about when we're out is is like for instance i'm not i'm not having a very clear start so we're out hunting black-tailed deer now you're going through coastal rainforest it's very thick and you yep. come on these openings yeah we call them musk eggs and we get to the edge of the opening i want to call right 
So in my mind, the perfect thing that would happen yeah. would be that I would hit the edge of the musket. Yeah. I would settle in. Yeah. Wiggle into the ground, like yeah. try to become the ground. Yeah. Or try to become a tree. And all the cam the camera guys would just lay down. <laughs> right. Right? Yeah. But they know that they have to do a job. Yeah. And the minute any of them move, I want on one hand be like, lay down. Yeah. But on the other hand, I'm like, well, the reason we're all here. Yeah, yeah that's right. It's because right. they're filming. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, like perfect, it, perfect it's, tension, right? What's it, your guys yeah. like what what's your guys' perspective? I mean, do you feel me giving you the evil eye? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> It's not. It's good though. 100%. No, no. There's there's a real functional thing, right? You, if you don't film it, then you have no show. But if you uh, spook the animal, yeah, then you also have no show. So yeah. there's there's two competing no shows that are yeah. possible. Yeah. So you're trying to figure out how or balance how to balance it. And I think what you guys did in creating this show was generally television making television is about control. Controlling all aspects, as and in like setting up, setting the, up uh, everything. Yeah. It becomes a, the the production becomes about production first, subject matter second. To control it and shoot it exactly how you want to do it and have the hours that you want to have and everything. And this this show uh, is about in some ways the hunt first. And then the camera guys has to have to figure it out. That was a clear decision from the very beginning was that the hunt would be authentic and the hunt would be the process. And we would accept whatever the outcome of that was, whether it was a failed hunt or a successful hunt. And that the the what it really took was was I don't brag about a lot of things. I am a I am a excellent, excellent camera operator. <laughs> and what it really took was having a team that was like kind of at that level because the the camera the language of camera is extremely articulate there's thousands and thousands of of variations what does that mean what it means is that um, I'm kind of tr- was trying to go on to explain that, but there's oh, okay. there's thousands of variations of what you can do with a particular shot to tell um to tell a story, right? Um, for example, a, a shot that there's a couple shots that became hallmarks of this show that I was like emphatic about from the very beginning that they they have to be because I had watched some hunting shows and I had seen like things like you were talking about earlier with the separation of the raptor and the rabbit. Yeah, I've seen that, that on hunting shows where they show an animal and then they show a dude and and they they feel disparate. From the very beginning, to me, I didn't. I was not super interested in like the kill shot, like the perfectly framed kill shot. I was very interested in integrating the hunter into the kill shot. So the over-the-shoulder shot of you taking a shot at an animal, yeah, was absolutely mandatory to me. It's it's nice because it works well in terms of how your silhouettes line up and in terms of the animal's field of view, you know. Um, so that one actually, that one actually played. Yeah, you sort of diminish what it's, you're diminishing yeah. what it's seeing. Well, instead of two dudes out there, yeah. you know, you see one dude. Um, another one for me, but the whole, because that that's important to stick on because yeah. the effect, the effect it gives is that anyone who's ever gone hunting with their friend, yeah, or whatever, like you know, I 
would spend a lot of time hunting my brothers. Yeah. And just the, the, the sneaking up on something. You're there. You don't sneak up side by side. No. Like, generally, like, there's the guy. Yeah. You're there. If you're calling for your friend or your friend's, yeah. uh, it's his turn or anything like that. Yeah. You're behind and you're sort of seeing the world through this kind of like this over the shoulder POV. view. And it wind up like in doing it that way, I felt really just felt so immediate, like you were with someone in the woods. Organic. And that was again because you don't always see what's going on. Perspective perspective was the most important thing in in developing this show. It was that we needed to we needed to put the audience in the hunt. You know, in order for a mainstream audience to accept this and like really kind of understand it. And in order to explain your philosophies and your world, we had to put them in the context. And so it had to be experiential. If we had gone in and set up a bunch of shots, you know, the audience would have instantly dismissed it. We were talking about my, like, kind of my mentor earlier um, in Michael Mann. He used to say, um, people are like smart as people, but they're brilliant as animals. What he meant by that was that people have this extrasensory perception of when shit is just wrong and bullshit. And and people know, an audience knows. If you look at you look at shows that are out there, you know when you're being shined on. You might accept it as like entertaining and be like, oh fine, I don't care. But you're like rabbits don't talk. But from the very right well, that's an extreme example. I don't but know if I would sure. come up with that example. I, I'm thinking like, more like, like survivalist shows yeah. where you look at something and you're like, something just doesn't look right about that. That just that's not right. And it's yeah, like, like, yeah, it isn't right because that's back of a Walmart. Like I've spent know? hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of days out in the woods. Yeah, seldom is my face dirty. Right. It might get a little sweaty, sure, but seldom is it dirty. But but things like that. I mean, people <laughs> our, do pick our friend, up. Uh, bear. People do pick up on things like that, and I think we knew from the beginning that we were treading on like new ground in terms of mainstream audiences and and, and stuff like that. In that that it had to be authentic. That if we if we broke the if we broke the audience trust in any way in terms of the authenticity and what we were presenting that we had really like lost the battle because we were we were trying to present a philosophy more than more than anything else you know um and make it entertaining and all those things but it really was like a philosophy you know so you you can't lie to people you can't like be like here's our philosophy and we really believe this and you're you're lying to them you know mm. what i mean you have to tell the truth in the language of camera you know the language of how you tell that is is super super important you got to bring people into the experience i found early on that what would happen a lot was i was following you but i wasn't looking at you i was looking past you right I was looking in the woods past you and kind of like moving from side to side and seeing you kind of pass in front of me. So that became a shot. I was like, well, that needs to be a shot. I need to put people in that experience. So I w- another shot I came up with that I really married into the, the language of the show was the long lens, meaning that I'm on a more of a telephoto side of the camera, pushing past your body, which is in soft focus, in the foreground 
to the background, which was usually woods or something we were looking at, which is in focus. And by, by doing that, what I'm telling the audience is Steve's looking at those woods. Steve's examining those woods. We're now in a, in a predatory mode. We're now down. We're, we're hunkered like you see wolves stock in, you know, and our focus is what's in front of us. What's happening in the foreground doesn't matter. We're looking, we're looking out. We're hunting now. And that became a very important shot. That was a, a shot that put people in the moment that they could understand on a cerebral and like primal level. You know, l- like I'm saying, there's a, there's a language to all this. And there's, there's hundreds and hundreds of shots like that. And, and what the art is really in doing this is knowing the context, knowing the experience, and, um, and learning when to plug those different shots in. Because this is all happening in the moment. It, it should be made clear to people that, that we didn't bullshit any of this. This was real stuff. These were real events, you know, that were happening we just over time learned like, you know, what, what technique do you plug into what hole as you go along and divulge the story? What is going to accentuate the story? What's going to bring people into that moment? Well, what I think is important within that too is we talked earlier about 22 minutes. Yeah. Now, when I'm uh, like, like, th- like think that when I, when I, when I was writing my Buffalo book, yeah. okay. And and I'm and I'm writing about the experience of being out looking for in Buffalo. Now, at a lot of times in my head is is stuff like, uh, you know, man, I like should I file for a deferment for my taxes this year, or yeah. or like, man, I should call my mom more often, yeah, and all these other things. But that's not part of what I'm talking about. Yeah. I'm talking about Buffalo. Yeah. So you create sort of a distorted sort of you create sort of a distorted reality about what it is you're thinking about and what it is you're talking about by highlighting certain elements of what you're talking about. In chasing 22 minutes um, over the course of seven days, eight days, chasing 22 minutes, just in the fact that you you're not, you might not be bullshitting, but you're selecting out a, a, a very, very small chunk of everything that occurred. Definitely. Yeah. Synthesizing. Yeah. If well, not, no, it would no, be no, no. synthesizing would... is not the right word. We are not we are I we are not synthesizing. What we're doing is condensing and and it's a distillery. We're it's not, not no we're a condens a condense wouldn't be accurate. If a condense would leave you no. twenty one minutes of glassing yeah. no. and one minute of stalking. I don't agree with that. It's we should, it, get, we should get it out of dictionary. It is not it is <laughs> but it is definitely not synthesizing. What does that mean? Synthesizing. Artificializing? Synthesizing would be to construct a reality. That's not what we're doing. We're selectively distilling the, the, the process. A selective down. distillation. I, I would, I would say we are, we are constructing an authentic version. So it is a synthesis in that it doesn't reflect the reality because the reality took place over eight days and right. now it's now 22 minutes. But if you do it correctly, then it, it reflects the original experience in a way that is is honest you can do it in a lot of different ways you can synthesize in a way that is totally different than that initial experience or you can do it in a way that is pretty 
closely parallels what you you yeah, honest is probably the key word yeah honest. yeah it's like with porn with porn you're not like well how did these two beat <laughs> <laughs> i don't they know I, I, no, the, but it's they that, left out the part where they it's met. it's semantics to some degree i but. think it, no it is semantics and I, but i think that was a very good explanation i just the word synthesis has a connotation to me that that um that I, I guess doesn't jive with the way that I view right. what we do, but I understand what you're saying, and in, in I, I think we're exactly on the yeah. same page. Because there's so many that. versions, and the reason I respect and I'm so happy to be working on this yeah. show is that process, whether it be synthesis or distilling or condensing or any other right, chemical exactly. term we, yeah. we got going here, is that you have to figure out a way to cram in this right. experience. Yeah. That yeah. Is lo- it's long. Nobody would ever actually in Norway. They do watch this stuff slow TV. Slow TV. But <laughs> have you heard about this? Eight but days. It's uh, but uh, generally in America we watch uh, you know twenty two minutes of yeah. something or a very short amount of time, but we film it over this long period and yeah. we want to give the audience the best version of a way that they one will watch. It's one but that, two yeah. that they respect. And that's and those two things together, man, it is really rough. It's really hard to make. It's that. it's very difficult to make and it requires like as you go through the process of making a single show, it's hundreds of decisions of like, well, should we do this or we do that or now is now are we sliding over the edge of what's bullshit and you know, now are we lying? Now are we telling the truth? Now is that you know, it's a lot of balancing like that as you go through it because you are, you know, you, we can't say that this is a scientific analysis of like of, a, of an experience. It's not. I mean, we're by virtue of the fact of handing, you know, having our hands on it, it anytime, an, it, anytime an avid or any other editing machine is involved in a process, you are affecting the reality. I mean, you're now writing a narrative. You know, what it is, is, you know, we, I think constantly we're asking ourselves or constantly ask ourselves as documentarians, does this fall within the bounds of what is generally perceived to be, you know, acceptable limitations on, on what is fair, you know, in documentary storytelling and, and there's no set of rules for that, but I think we all kind of inherently, when we work in this genre, understand what those are and understand when we've crossed those boundaries. What was nice about this show is that I, I feel almost without exception that we never made those calls. Even though they might have made more exciting shows, we we fell within what we thought were the boundaries because I think that's the way we just wanted to live our life was to feel that we had done something that had some integrity, you know? Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year 
when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. This festival and concert season will be all about the boots, and Tacovas is your stop before attending your next concert. Tacovas has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. And Tacovas has first wear comfort, meaning you put them on, they feel great. Little or no break in, period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Plus, their direct consumer pricing keeps value on your feet and money in your pocket just ask my buddy chili who's been slipping around in his tacova boots talking about how great he feels in them he loves them yeah steve they're very comfortable they're very fashionable and i enjoy wearing mine around the office and anywhere i go around bozeman stop by your local tacova store have a complimentary drink and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and a friendly staff are at your service. Many stores have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it to a store, just visit tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. And find your new favorite pair of boots today. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating you know some organ the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill i had that when i was a little kid and it was a big deal organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients and as often is the case those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. That's, I mean, it's, it's like a whole field of study is... Yeah. authenticity in, in documentary film. And yeah. Is that right? It, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of very smart... Do they sit right next to the to wildlife biologists who want to go into documentary? <laughs> <laughs> That's, well, we had to read some of that stuff. Uh, but there's this, you know, Werner Herzog, who has made uh, both fiction and nonfiction. One of my favorite... I mean, one, one, of, the great, one of my absolute so favorite he, So he man, talks yeah. about, in, in documentary, there's moments that he creates through film that are more truthful than the reality of the situation. Yeah. Yeah. I'm familiar with that line of thought. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and in some degree, you know, that's, but that, there was, there was a high profile case. I shouldn't say high profile. There's, there's a medium profile case where a woman was writing a memoir about her life and, and hard scrabble existence. And, how she wanted to be a writer, but but didn't get any support from her parents. And she wrote in her book and pre- presented as fact that her father 
caught her with a typewriter and ceremoniously took the typewriter out and, and, and pulverized it with a sledgehammer. Turns out her old man bought the goddamn typewriter for her. <laughs> okay. But she, in her defense, said, well, all things taken in, his, the, the way he viewed my wanting to be a writer was akin to had he smashed my typewriter. So yeah. to make that point in a way that assisted the narrative. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, this right? is. It's a fuck. I'm, what I'm trying to say is it's like, it's a, it, 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 and we've walked it many, many times. It's a very difficult balance. Yeah, right. but she was over the edge. No, yes. I mean, clearly, no, like, I'm pointing yeah, out not, she was yeah, over the edge. People yeah. want to classify things as either yeah. fiction or nonfiction. Right, right. yeah. And it's uh, it's not a helpful, it's not helpful. No, no. I would. That's what I would say. It's not helpful. Like our twenty-two minute version yeah. show, it is an authentic version of what we experienced. But it's twenty-two minutes. You got to cut some stuff out. We didn't like. We didn't film Garrett. You know, almost no. dying down this yeah, mountain. Yeah. That would have been the best part of the, that. Would have been the amazing. Night, the night no, struggle we had. Yeah, nights, night yeah. walk back. Like all these things just didn't make it because. We're shooting 200 minutes each. So that's 600 minutes a day yeah. in footage. Yeah. Is that right? You can't put all that in a show. Yeah. Yeah. You can't. So that's I've four shot, days we shot. I've 2,400 <laughs> minutes. What is that? Yeah. <laughs> I shot a hundred. How many, how, how many minutes altogether? Well, I, I'd say 2,400 plus our little bonus yeah. cams here and there. 2,500 minutes. So we're minutes. using one out of every 100 minutes? That's yeah. But a, but a yeah, 1 yeah. to 100 ratio is not surprising. I shot... This year, I shot a hundred hours of footage for a forty-four minute show. Hundred hours of footage. Yeah. So almost, yeah. we never, almost, we never know, we never know when the animals actually going to be there either. So we're rolling full All time, time because like like this hunt. Yeah. All of a sudden, it was like, uh, yeah. And That's this is a perfect. This oh. is a perfect example of cameraman knowing what shot he needs to get. Per, uh, director telling, okay, I need the over the shoulder yeah. shot. That that Mo, you know, made as a part of the show. I didn't make it. I just yeah, no, no. But recognize the value of getting an over the shoulder shot that contextualizes the whole experience. But uh, cameraman and the guy he's following is just in two different locations, and if he moves, you know, I should have moved with you when you went to that next location, and I just didn't. But But I when he was getting when he shot the deer. Well. I was initially yeah, was lined up. To get. I was initially lined up over your shoulder, and I was good, and I was happy, and a great two shot, perfect. I would have been down the barrel. I know. I just and then he moved, and I didn't wow. go with him because uh, I was scared that I was going to get yelled at by Steve. It's all bark. It's all bark and no bite. It's all bark and no bite. Like, what am I really going to do? Well, no, what's going to? No, no, I know. You, I'm trusting when I'm evil lying and all that and yelling. Whisper yelling? It's so much harder. Eyeball yelling? All I'm doing, when I'm whisper yelling, all I'm doing is I'm basically saying this. I'm saying, I know that you need to do your job. Do your job in the way, the best way you can that conforms to my ideal of you laying face down in the dirt. Well, <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. No, so, so Eric is saying, get, get the shot, get the shot. And I'm like, I can't move. I yeah, can't. but what I would say about that situation, I think you guys handled that situation perfectly. We were on exposed face with a deer looking at us, and there was no... No, he wasn't looking at us when we set no, up. No, he wasn't looking at us when we, I set, when we set up. I summoned I, him. 
I moved. I moved because I knew if a deer popped out, I was going to blow your friggin' eardrum out. You know, from where that. from where I was sitting. So I had to get in front of you. Um, and I, I once that once we made that call, there was no one was going to move. We were on an exposed face. No, and I, I should have anticipated that because I could have moved with you. There was not a lot of space for you to be. But but I mean, Silhouette all this nice all this means to say is like you do the. I mean, with these things, you do the best you can with the situation you're handed, and you 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 kind of accept what right. the best you know what the best you can do is. It's nice when you have the setup and the forethought and the time to be able to position yourself. And I and that for me was like a big learning curve on this show was was positioning. When I got really good at it on the show, I could position to the point where I would reveal animals by by moving slightly around Steve. Like in the case of the moose in Alberta, which is a a beautiful reveal, and in the case of the javelina in Texas, mm-hmm. um, where like I knew where the animals were going to pop out, and like I was behind it, and I could just slightly move without spooking them. And reveal something that the audience hadn't yet seen, like a moose standing in front of you. But that, I mean, dude, yeah. you know, it's hard. And no, you I only do, the, six you do what you can. Six people up yeah. there. Six people. We pulled that off. You know, it's, it's. I mean, we pull it off often. <laughs> That's a lot of. It's, and it's going to read yeah, so authentic what, too. Yeah, the other thing I think happens is, even just like hiking up into the area we wanted to hunt, we stopped at a muskeg, set up, called nothing. Yeah. Stopped at a muskeg, yeah. set up, called nothing. Yeah. Stopped at another muskeg, set up, called nothing. That was before we even got to where we were going. Yeah. So this time, this goes on and on. We set up many places and wait, nothing happens. And you start to get, there's like a fatigue kind of sets in. Right. Like the first time, you might get a, you get your rest all, I get my backpack set, just how I want to be. You know, everything's, I got my, everything's set, my scope set. You know, and I'm ready. The 11th time, you're just kind of, I was going to lean against this tree and blow the call. I'll sort the rest out later. I'm, I'm not saying you got that that happens to you, but it happens to me. Uh, yeah, to absolutely. Where it's, it, uh, what, a thing that makes a good hunter is always being like, but this could be the time. But I, I, will, I, I, I will say that I, that is something I didn't feel vulnerable to when we were when we were really doing the show. I did not feel vulnerable to fatigue or like, oh, you know, I just don't want to do it. No, this but time. I, but I, I, I'm guilty of it, and I even get to where, like, Corey will be asking me, tell me what, give me the setup, give me the setup. I'm gonna say, hey, we don't need a setup. We're gonna go up here, and nothing's gonna happen. You know, yeah. well, I just like to know what to be like. You're telling <laughs> no, me, no, but you're like, hey, you end, stick out like a sore thumb. So I was about ready to change my clothes. <laughs> so it, I, was up, I was up there in fluorescent. I, I green. had just, but it would have been yeah. helpful. It would have yeah. been helpful. Changed the battery. Had the I explained, but yeah. right, it would have been helpful had I said an hour ago, whatever the hell it was, we saw a deer. We watched yeah. a deer. Well, I know we saw he, a deer, and you know, no, but I mean, just for not me, helpful for you, helpful for the show, the show right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Had I done a, oh, we've now arrived at where we feel like a deer yeah. vanished. Yeah. We're going to blow a call and hopefully he'll pop his head up. Well, but I'm like, just, yeah, I've been saying that for three days, dude. Yeah, two but, days. Dude, dude I, remember, I remember having some epic fights with you, man, in the field about like, oh, dude, just please tell us what's going on right now. 
in like day seven or eight or whatever on odd ad, you know, when we were going up after him, I was like, <laughs> please just tell me. But I understand like the fatigue of yeah. just like day in, day out, us setting things up that then didn't pan out that are just going to hit the editing room floor. Absolutely yeah. not making the show. So all of your ideas, emotional energy, all the stuff you put into producing content, it's like wipe trying to wipe the slate clean and say like, I'm sorry, man, I know you worked really hard on that, but it's a complete waste now. Now you have to reset it up. <laughs> now you yeah. have to redo it again. And after a while, man, that's just so draining dude it's hard to make it's hard to do that over and over again and i start to feel embarrassed yeah you start to get like because you're talking to the camera but you're in a way you're talking to the guy holding the camera definitely that's a whole nother thing we should talk about but so you know it's like you know just on this trip Corey, be like okay what's going on you feel like dude i've been telling you i mean (laughs) (laughs) you really want me to tell you this again yeah, there might be a deer yeah, over there. Are you <laughs> this is this is an interesting thing because the relationship between the in specifically in this usually it's the relationship between the director and the and the subject, um, but in this it really is a relationship between the camera operator, the director of photography, and the subject. Because you guys got the point of contact. It, it can't you know a director. We just. In, the, in this context, you really don't need another person walking out into the field of view of all these animals, you know. So the camera operator directs a lot of that interaction and that relationship, and it's a hard position to be in because you're asking really, really obvious questions that you know, but that you know that the audience needs to know. So you're like, I'd be often asking you things that you're like, dude. You know, like, yeah. you know that. I'd be like, yeah, dude, I know I know that. <laughs> but <laughs> I just need you to say it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and um, and there's a lot of, like, there's a lot of trust and stuff involved in that. There's a lot of, like, development of, of relationship involved in that, you know. That's the thing I found is uh, a ben- there's a benefit to working with people you had, camera operators you haven't worked with. And there's a benefit to the ones you have worked with. Yeah. The ones you haven't worked with is yeah. we'll be going through the woods, and I'll see something. And if it's a guy I don't know or don't know well, I'm always turning being like, well, turning to him, meaning turning to the camera. Yes. I mean, like, hey, check this out. So what happens is, you know, yeah. I'm all excited to, like, introduce him to this new subject. Yeah, exactly. And I'd be like, you see this? You know, do you do that? And he'll go do this. And, you know, you see where a bear, he'll. And then later when you, it's like. Then later, when you're with someone you've had many experiences with, yeah, you're kind of like, yeah, they already know all that shit, anyways. Right? You just kind of yeah. go to the woods. The advantage of the person you know is you get a real eye contact thing. Yeah. Where I, I'll yeah. be like, we're sitting there for hours. I'll have something I also want to say, and just you know, I, like turn or raise my finger. Yeah. And we're doing it. And, and, and it, or like, you know, I've kind of like just little signals. I'm, I'm making signals so you can see my hands, listen to a podcast, but a little signal says a lot. Like a little signal says like, no, I mean, seriously, there's something standing right here. Yeah. This is this, like the way I'm waving my hand right now, we both know means like this thing is extremely close. Yeah. And it, there's a shorthand that develops. That's yeah. helpful for, it's helpful for actually hunting, but it's not helpful for, 
no doing the story it's helpful for functionality and what you like ultimately hope is that you kind of have both of those and that's a big part of like you know a big part of directing this kind of stuff is learning how to establish a relationship but not contaminate the subject right and and how to continually pump the subject we're like i've i have found that in in like documentary directing and a lot of documentary directing, the most powerful weapon that I have as a director to try to move the story forward, to try to help the host progress the story, divulge information, stuff like that, is, is a smile. It's the weirdest thing. It's not talking. It's a facial expression of, of interest. So a lot of times when I'm working, like like I'll work with chefs on these long projects. I just finished one. It was seven months of working with a chef that I didn't particularly get along with. Um, but I spent more of my less of my time talking to him and more of my time smiling and nodding and being very interested in what he was saying, um, with a couple little questions here and there, kind of pulling him along. It's it's an interesting thing. It's a it's it becomes emotionally draining, um, and it's hard to do. It's harder than you would think it would be to do. But that that kind of interaction and like freshness of of interest, you know, on my part, really can help pull that information out and. No, I and I would just say, watching both Mo and Eric just during this whole uh, shoot, I worked with some directors that just are constantly exerting their own ego right. on the situation. Yeah, yeah, that's a big mistake. That's and oh, and it's and I've worked with these you know guys that have been in the industry for a long time, and that's what they do. They just are constantly, basically, like trying to get the host to basically say what they want to say. Like in this very forceful kind of, yeah. and it is terrible. I mean, there there are times, you know, to kind of jump in and try to direct things certain ways. But basically, uh, to to be hands off in a way and like use subtlety, yeah, is man way more skillful and leads to such a better product than. Uh, it- than it definitely does. And what I like, what I do when I go into a situation, less with Steve, because Steve and I like always had a, a real natural simpatico in, in working together. But in working with people that I have more difficulty with, um, I will go, I'll go into a scene with like two or three things that I do want the host to say. Um, but 95% of what I'm getting them to deliver are their own ideas. You know? Things you want them to say or like things you want them to convey? Concepts. Or, Concepts yeah, that I want them yeah, to convey. Touch on. Not, not specific dialogue because um, I don't care how it comes out. I just, but ideas that I know are important to the story arc we're trying to tell. Most of what I'll spend my time doing is, again, it's smiling and nodding and encouraging them to feel empowered to divulge their information and their ideas and to feel like their ideas are valid, you know, and to feel like they have a voice and are empowered, you know, 
that's super important. And when you, when a host feels confident, when, you know, when a host feels like they're doing a good job and in control, like it, that the camera reads that a hundred percent. I mean, that makes a good host. That's someone the audience can look at and be like, well, this is someone who clearly feels comfortable in their environment, comfortable in the information they're divulging, you know? And then every once in a while, pepper in like a, Hey, remember when we talked about this, you know, and, and what you're constantly trying to do is again, like empower the host. Remember when you said this, remember when we talked about this, remember when you had that idea of this, remember when, you know, those kinds of things, again, it, 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 the host has a a feeling then that they're coming up with a natural organic idea. A lot of times they are, by the way, because it's all information that I got in, in pre-production interviews, you know, um, and stuff like that. It's just that I know that right now is the time to say that. And you you need it delivered in a usable way at a usable time. But I want it not just delivered in a usable way in like a soundbite. I want it delivered in a confident way where the host feels comfortable and organic. And those, Again, when you talk about like the human bullshit meter, when people are watching TV and they see someone that's empowered and feels like re- they really understand the the you know the context and feel good about what they're delivering, people people buy that man. People buy it. Mo, man. did you feel? I mean, you were on camera this episode. Did you feel that feeling that hosts probably feel often about? Am I saying the right thing, or am I coming across in like the right way? Like, if there's a funny yeah I guess. sensitivity yeah. or ego that that yeah. comes with with being on camera that's different uh, from being behind the camera, where yeah. you do think like, oh, I just said a bunch of shit. Does like, am I saying the right? Like, is this good shit? Because you, in some you ways, be it's not that you're making it up, but you're you're you know you're on camera. It's not like it's you almost like create cameras. a character, right? Yeah, it's a like, it's a performative thing, and you want to be like coming across in a good way, and not like a douchey way or whatever. You know, you want to you don't, you want to not be failing, or you in, don't care. Yeah, because you'll have conversations yeah. all the time, and and we did too. Yeah, where Mo will say like, "Hey, what's the with this?" Or, or do you remember that time? And he'll be like, "Oh no, no, never mind," because I'm gonna take my authentic question. My authentic recollection. Save it. Save it and keep its authenticity, but then wedge it in where I need it to live. Right. So it's like the impetus to say it is perfectly natural. It's something you're really honestly curious about. But I'm gonna have to suspend the 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 gratis you know, the gratification of getting my answer in order to get my answer at a time that becomes usable for the production. Yeah, it's useful. It's it's like Bullshit, but not at all bullshit. It's just like a reshuffling. It's, it's like a, a reshuffling of a reality. Reshuffling. You know? I can say that there's nothing. I mean, there's nothing I said up here in in the context of the show that I don't like 100 percent believe in my heart or aren't my feelings about this whole you know greater subject. None of it was made up, and I didn't sit down like on the plane ride up here and like articulate the points that I thought would make me look cool or whatever, you know, but there definitely was a lot, like a lot of moments going along where I was like, yeah, I shouldn't ask that question right now, you know, or I shouldn't say that right now. Like I know, you know, that we're going to end with a meal scene, right? Like 
those are thoughts that you want to save for that meal scene because like, I, you know, I want a nice impactful ending that has emotional quality and like that people can, that kind of buttons the idea up and, yep. you know, and I know that like when we're starting out, I want to, you know, set up a couple basic principles that are going to, you know, guide us through or set us on the right trajectory to kind of tell this story. You know, if I have something I'm very passionate about, yeah, an observation that I that I'm wed to. I'll go against my own instincts and and stick it in multiple places. Yeah, because yeah. I'm trying to like I'm hedging my bet. I'm trying to make sure. Yeah. So I'm like I'll say some point, yeah. and then it's almost painful to me. But I'll do it. Like I'm gonna do my point again. I know. And then I'm gonna do my point again later. Yeah. And it's gonna be the only thing I do that many times. And I'm sort of like. By I'm sort of pushing this idea that this idea has to be there, and you yeah. have a variety of ways to use it. But I know, but I mean, as we go through these hunts, you're, there's a there's a lot of different ways that the hunt can play out. When we were up there, like you know, you'll deliver some idea, and and we still haven't completed a successful hunt, and it could be that we don't end up with a successful hunt. And that that moment that you delivered that idea is the most exciting moment in the show, you know? Um, but it also could be that, that we then run into a lot of exciting stuff. A lot of things that happen after that, that you're like, okay, well, I, I know that stuff before is getting cut out. So if I want to get this idea across, I got to interject it because from an editorial standpoint and from a standpoint of telling a show that's like coherent in the language of television, they can't, they can't cut to some, some moment in some place that we've never even seen in the show yeah. that we didn't establish where you're saying something awesome, but makes absolutely no sense, you know, because you're like, wait a second, how the hell did he get there? And where did that jacket come from? You know, it, it has to be that, I mean, there are rules to this. It's there are rules to how a show unfolds. If we could just make a a quilt, you know, like approach the show like a patchwork quilt, and just plug a bunch of stuff in from a bunch of different places and whatever, we could make a you know choose a, your own adventure a very articulate story that you could you could write down on paper word for word and read it and be like, wow, that is just brilliantly told story yeah but the visuals on screen would make absolutely no sense it'd be like a bad acid trip that was a really <laughs> clear decision from the very very beginning that we were not going to use interviews and when you don't when you use interviews you by default de facto you do not have a cine, cinematic show it it, it no bullshit yeah I, I see i touching the void what's that touching the void seems really oh, cinematic that's to me. a good point Based on interviews, 100% recreations, no footage of the actual event. Amazing film. Yeah, I need to not? think about that for a second, but I, I need to think about it because it's, it's but an, it is an amazing in general, film. I, I, I agree it is in an general. That you, and, it, and, and by the way, like, like I give you tons of props for that pull that fast. <laughs> <laughs> we were just talking about because, it. Because I you, went to film you, school too, man. You definitely, you, you definitely stumped me on that one. But, but no, I would agree with you. In, in general yeah, terms, absolutely. you you break you break the momentum of a cinematic story when you cut to an interview. An interview again, it takes you out of it. Yeah. Again, you know, people are brilliant animals, and and they understand 
at some level that you're now going into some contrived, controlled environment with a controlled scenario, which is this guy delivering a line of dialogue that perfectly ties everything together. There needs to be in where did that come from? Where did doing shows like that come from? What the interview? Talking heads. Who invented that? No, like where you have well, people doing little interactions, but then they're commenting oh, on their own interactions. The news, the, it's I, efficient. Well, no, but where, who can What is show do first? TV. News magazine shows before reality TV were yeah, very manipulative right. in yeah. how they. I think that's a good had call. people answer questions. They would add, they would phrase questions in a way that basically, and then and cut the interviews in a way that that made them say certain things and i think it it went from that uh into certain forms of of reality tv where they really constructed these interviews and then i think it was just a natural progression i think that's i think that's a smart assessment i'm going to come back to touching the void for a second if you could have told that story in a purely verite sense you would have but there were what story touching the void touching the void but there were no cameras so they had to go to a recreation basis. So I don't I just, just I for, don't, for, for just on, for out on, of sympathy for the viewers, I, listeners, I'll, I'll, I'll yeah. touching the void. Okay. It's a film. It's about, about a mountaineering accident, a mountaineering disaster um, that was not being filmed when it happened. And what what mountain range? You know, Cordia. it's the Cordia Blanca. No, Cordia Blanca range. Yeah, Peru is that Peru? In Peru, yeah. yeah. So the two been people, it, it involved a, 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 a fellow who had to cut his climbing partner loose, not knowing, couldn't see his climbing partner, didn't know if he's dead or alive. He's hanging on a rope below him and, and, and cuts the rope. And the only way to tell the story is th- these two men are interviewed. Right exhaustively and there's some very artful recreations look, that look, never make you feel like you're actually watching it happen you're right. very aware that right. it's so let me let me and it wasn't like on. the old history channel style recreation where everything gets kind of hazy right let me let me continue on here because i i do this that was an important point and like a good you know a good example um it is a documentary in the technical sense you can't deny that it's a documentary but it is not verite Oh, and uh, and and verite for the audience too is is like a fancy term for real shit happening. French, the French figured it out. Right, Chronicle of the Summer. And and you know, <laughs> and so what we're doing in these shows is really verite, absolutely. And and so that's that to me is where the difference is when you're intercutting interviews into recreations that are obviously understood by the audience to be recreations that's one thing and and it's a beautiful documentary sort of it's a, a brilliantly it's told story probably to fiction filmmaking and the guy was a fiction it is closer to fiction yeah, filmmaking yeah, when you're cutting interviews into verite what is supposed to be reality that to me is when you're breaking it. The real, the real gift, the the real skill of of ZPZ, of the company we work for, is that we over time have learned how to make cinematic verite, how to make um, choices in in framing, in cinematography, in music, and you know, I, I would say maybe mo- not most importantly, but very up there. Very good writing. Excellent, narr- yeah, excellent writing. Yeah. What we what we do is we take a bunch of of ideas that come from feature filmmaking, from from cinematic, 
you know, produced feature film or narrative television making, and we apply them to verite f- format. And, and, you know, that is, that to me is what has been successful. The, the second you cut to an interview, a talking head interview out of that, you break that momentum. And I guess that's what I meant for, for clarification yeah. on, on what I was saying before is you can't, in this kind of show, you can't do that. To me, you can't do that. Along those lines, in terms of talking about verite, a lot of that you know circles back to acceptance. And we were talking about this scenario where you were caught out and you couldn't get behind Mo. For you guys, you know, Mo and Steve, it's something you guys talked about earlier. But that transition and that struggle of accepting a non-successful hunt. You know, which was the reality of the scenario, which doesn't necessarily equate to, you know, the the button that you want to put on a television show yeah. or a film. What was that transition like? Did you feel, you know, a lot of anxiety around a possible non-successful hunt? I mean, where you know, was it a mutual anxiety? Like, how did you guys overcome that? Because, frankly, from watching the I show progress, like, some of the most successful, happen. some I mean, some of the most entertaining shows that I've watched. Are yeah. ones that you haven't. Yeah. Shown. No, I thought that you couldn't do it. I thought you had to just throw it all in the garbage. Yeah. No, I, I think that was a big. I mean, that was a big leap of faith early on to to haven't. To first of all, I think the it first was my idea because I argued against it. I know. What What was your argument? Just have to scrap it. Scrap it. New episode. Shoot new episode. Yeah. Because uh, and we. Like, I got. We got an email one time. A guy saying, "I've had a lot of failure in my life." I do not need to go and see you go out and fail. Wow. Yeah. I don't want to. almost made me feel bad for I don't, the guy. I don't want to go to dinner with that guy. <laughs> I, I actually do feel bad for that guy as well, man, because yeah. I think he's missing the greater point. But but generally, it was, it was well-received, but I argued it was vehemently yeah. that we, it, was the fourth, it was the fourth one we did. Yeah. I argued that it was like, there's just no way. It sucks. Yes, we'll figure something out. We'll go to my mom's and hunt squirrels in her yard. Like it was a great show. There's like a way that we don't have to use this because you can't have a hunting show where someone doesn't get something. Yeah, but you know what happened in that show? What was the 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 reason? The the reason it it was the goat hunt. Um, in uh, but are you saying you didn't have any anxiety or concern about this? No, of course I did. Yeah, I'm a human being. Yeah, you know. It, but But I don't remember you being. I don't remember being worried about it. No, I, I was. I was confident in it. Well, no, I was a little worried about it, but I was I was confident that we had made a good show. But what what happened and what what I the reason that I argued for it and that I thought it would be successful is that what what happened is all of a sudden by by not coming home with a goat on that show, the the subject matter of the show changed. It no longer was a show about a goat hunt. The goat hunt was the structure for the show. But what the show was about was you and your brother and your writing and the way that you handled the the writing, especially of the end of the last act and how that played out, made it a show about spending time with with Danny and how important that was. And it was an aha moment because it was like all of a sudden it was like, wait a second. Guys, there's a whole world here of stuff that we haven't explored. It's not just about hunting. 
you know, it's about life and philosophy and like, and the, you know, the relationships you have and the way that you experience the world, like any of these subject matters, any of these things can be, can be the, the driving force of the story or the conclusion to a story. We go out and hunt, you know, we're successful, we're not successful, whatever, but there's a huge takeaway from the audience in hearing about why it's important to go out and like spend time with your brother and have that kind of connection and that kind of bond and to be able to make a, 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 a smart and accurate judgment call in the moment and be like, it's a nanny and a moral judgment, um, which some people may agree with or may not agree with. And I'm not casting judgment on where people would fall on it, but to say like, well, technically I'm legally allowed to shoot a nanny, but you really shouldn't, and and I don't want to, and, and encourage not to, and encourage people encourage not to buy fishing game, but allowed to do it. Right, exactly, yeah. and 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 I think that a lot of things on that episode for me, it's a real benchmark episode because a lot of those things came together in like it, it really was like a light bulb coming on. It was like, wait a second, that guys, there's a whole nother world here. We don't need to feel the tremendous pressure that we've been feeling to go out and have these successful hunts. Like we can now tell more nuanced and, and articulate stories about the human experience and they don't have to be predicated on a kill shot at the end. You know, um, not that, not to say that there's anything wrong with that. That's, I mean, it's great, you know. But we told a lot of great shows, you know, a lot of great stories after that that were about a varying degree, you know, a varying amount of subject matters that didn't have to do with necessarily killing an animal. Yeah. And, and to me, that's what's given the show integrity and, and legs over time. We got a lot of stuff we can fall back on, a lot of stories we can tell, and a lot more we can tell in the future, you know. Dirt myth? Authenticity is a as a entire this is your concluding thought. Oh, now. Conclu- I got two actually. I've thought of this. Can you also talk about where you're at with chewing tobacco right now? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just like because you quit for you quit for a while. Then the car the other day, I quit. Yeah, baby Six steps. Hours. Baby steps. Yeah, I'm 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 being supported by my friends and coworkers on quitting a horrible addiction. But my concluding thoughts. No, no, no one more minute. <laughs> Do you see yourself chewing in a year? No. You I'm see yourself chewing in one month. I'm going to quit tomorrow. No, no, don't bullshit. <laughs> no, I'm going to say that's what I always think. And then I... No, but okay, wait, you don't see yourself chewing in a year. No. Do you see yourself chewing in a month? Yeah. Do you see yourself chewing, oh, in six months? Probably, yeah. Okay, just trying to get a sense of. <laughs> you see yourself <laughs> chewing in 11 months and 29 days. Probably a lot, and then I'm quitting. Oh, oh okay. All right. From, so this so. is like a benchmark well, moment, like well, one year as from of now. now. I'm gonna write the date down. Well, History's being made. Right. But yeah, no. Lay your, lay your concluding thoughts out. Um, Otherwise, I'm worried. I just don't want to see you d- develop a hole in your lip. I know. No, I, I appreciate that too. It comes. It comes with love. But the uh, yeah, the concluding thoughts. I think that the the really cool thing I've been witness to. And this is my fifteenth, so I'm I'm new, but I'm also fifteen episodes. Yeah, yeah. man, you're a meat eater. Yeah, fifteen. Yeah. So there's there. eight. You're an old hand, man. Total. Yeah. So you're like uh, I don't know how many there are total. A lot. There's a lot. There's, there's a like lot. yeah, we were talking about it. How many without kill shots? Well, home. It's 
It's over eighty. Okay, over mm-hmm. eighty. But something that uh, something that I've seen and that was spoken about tonight that's really cool is the crew has to be authentic to basically make it. Yes. And with that being said, that makes all that we're talking about possible is it's all people who are willing to put that effort in to yeah. get the authenticity. Yeah. yeah. People, it's got to be people who enjoy it. Yeah. That's the whole thing. When we're talking about like issues like that, I'm always like, does he like running around out in the woods? Yeah, exactly. You can't. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Because that'll be helpful that's, that's gonna <laughs> be a lot of it <laughs> and uh, you know what's great is how many non-hunters are sitting here right now yeah like, oh yeah. for sure man and uh yeah. oh, man that's because of the ethos of the show man yeah. that, that, so is, that has a lot to do with, with you know the development really of the show and steve who yeah. steve is and just no and the one diehard hunter we had has got a gimpy knee now yeah so yeah yeah that's, second second concluding thought was if you died, ABC. <laughs> like if I actually died right now. Yeah. Airway, breathing, circulation. I check all that shit. Before, before, <laughs> before doing the podcast. Yeah. And then continue the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and if it's still flatline, I hit the spot, and yeah, we'd continue rolling. But that's my, that's my concluding thoughts. I like that. That's good, man. <laughs> yeah. Corey? No, it's great to work with Mo and, like, you know, kind of, he's like the founder of the show on the cinematic end of things, and. You know, listening to him tonight and like learning some, some true wisdom coming from a person who like kind of developed the show or helped develop the show. And then like, you know, a second thought is, um, why we kind of all got into working in this adventure, filmmaking, adventure television is like, uh, you know, it's like anything you struggle. It's like life. You struggle, struggle, struggle to attain this main goal, which maybe is like, the main goal is to create a great, the, our best television show we can. Whether that's you know along the way carrying hundred pound packs up the steepest stuff you can imagine, like almost falling face first multiple times, or like stressing about your shot placement, or as a cameraman, or like where you need to be, and like in the end it all works out, and like having you know building camaraderie within this one week with everyone with the same goal in mind, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of fulfilling yeah, for sure. Yeah. So yeah, no, another great POW show. POW dubs. PO dubs. <laughs> Where stories are made. <laughs> and rain. A little bit of rain. <laughs> no, and the other thing that I think people need to know. Oh, you skipping your turn. Oh man. All right. <laughs> do it. Do it. Does the system do it? I like skipping turns. That was what I was going to say. <laughs> Closing thoughts. Uh, oh, it, not skipping your. I didn't mean <coughs> skipping your turn. You got what I meant. Jumping the gun. Jumping the gun. <laughs> High holing. <laughs> I'm definitely that guy. Uh, for me, High it's it, you know it, it's really nice to come out here and see like um, that the show's in like such good hands. I mean, you guys, I think, do like a tremendous job, man. Um, I know how. I'm I'm one of the few people that knows how hard this job is, um, and it is very difficult you know, to shoot this show. Uh, and I think you guys do a great job. And the other thing is just the, the satisfaction of, you know, of being here six years later and still having a successful show up and running with no signs of, of weakening. You know, I mean, that is a very rare thing in television to be a part of something 
at the beginning and see it be successful and maintain its integrity throughout a, a lifespan. 80 shows is no joke by any you know stretch of the imagination. There's no reason to think that it won't be 100, 100 plus. And um, those are real rarities in, in what we do. You know, most of the time you're working on a show that gets canceled after the first season. Yeah. Uh, most of the time you're you're working on some show that's a pitch that never sees the light of day. There's hundreds of them. You know, um, I've had the the benefit of of working on a couple with legs that really that really run and run and. For me, this one, for a number of reasons, has been the the most important and the most fulfilling over time, um, and has m- done more to shape who I am uh, today in uh, my belief system than than any other. So it's been a tremendous gift, a uh, tremendous gift. Yeah. So I can't really follow that. I don't. That's, <laughs> whatever I'm going to say, yeah. Not, but what tell I, them about how when they're watching a wildlife, <laughs> no, I'm watching a wildlife sequence. How what they don't realize is there's a hundred people standing there filming the same thing in camel. There's yeah, there's a lot of well, I'm not going to talk about that either. <laughs> but what I am going to say is this: this is a very physical job, and I'm always like I think of myself as somebody that's. Uh, you know, like in some ways, exceptionally fit to be able to like. Yeah, you're always cruise. tuning right along. What are you going to say? You're not. No, no, I, I'm fi- I'm fine. But the, everybody else carrying like, I'm just impressed with the crew that's on the show. It's a great crew. Everybody, how one, how much shit they're carrying. And Gee, how, yeah, you know, I had all my dive weights in my pack. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. No, and it's it's crazy. I forgot but, them in there. I forgot they were in there. But I, <laughs> didn't even notice. You know, it's it's like a club of some sense that you're a part of. It's yeah. to film a show like this. Rogan called it a tribe. Yeah, and you're just you're. Yes, when people go hiking, everybody's tired hiking. But when you're hiking with extra film stuff, and then you're running ahead. Yeah, and like. Doing we just weird things that you would <laughs> ne- never do as a normal person. Yeah, and I like to think, okay, I am somebody that can do this weird thing. But then you see like five other, six other people doing this, and you're like, what the hell? There's there's other people that are also <laughs> this, and it, it's a str- it's a really strange set of folks that enjoy this type of uh, activity. And I and I like that there's the folks that have worked on Mediator have gone on to do other, you know, bigger, better things or, but they look at meat eaters, uh, a place where that is very, I don't know, very fulfilling. And I think everybody wants when they work to do something that's fulfilling and it's cool to, to, to be a part of a group that is fulfilled by working on a show because there's a lot of TV that is the opposite of this. But you work on something, you feel good about it, and uh, and hopefully people enjoy it. And that's... Yeah, and then later when they become traders, they still look back. <laughs> <laughs> they still look back. No, but yeah, Eric. Um, just piggybacking off of everyone's points, I think um, it's uh, it is a bit of a tribe. I think you know if when you meet someone um, that has worked on this show um, and inherently 
part of that process, you know, struggled through probably some intense weather conditions and some long, long days and, uh, and long nights, you immediately feel bonded with that person. And I think you guys were talking about it earlier. Um, it's, it, it kind of also redefines, you know, fun in the moment. It feels arduous, but those are frankly some of the best experiences I've ever had. And, and some of the best stories that I tell are stories from mediator shoots, you know, stories and experiences I had with you, Steve, or, or crew members here. And, and these are guys, you know, half these guys I just met like three or four days ago and, and will now walk away, you know, calling them without a question, my friends. Um, and so I think that that is a really, really unique, um, you know, platform and, you know, experience that Mediator gives you um, every time you come out, uh, whether you're working on it. And hopefully that's something that people take away with, you know, their audience members that watch this. For my concluding thought, uh, I want to talk about something someone said to me at the first TV meeting I ever went to. Cause I th- and it's applicable to life in general i think where it was someone named gloria fan who i still keep in touch with a producer and i went out and and met with her and some other people in los angeles in i think 2004 2005 and uh we sat down in a room and we were going to talk about trying to do something with hunting and other ideas and the first thing she says is she says it's in, it's impossible to get anything made. Nothing gets done. It's just one frustration after the other, and it leads nowhere. With that, let's get started. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks for tuning in. It's the documentary. It's the documentary episode. There wasn't a lot about hunting in this episode. It was a lot of yeah. If you need, if you want to go to film school, then then listen. Yeah, to this go one. to biology first. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that was fun. Yep. Thanks, guys. Cool. Thank you. Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now, and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some meat eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close, you can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls because I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like him. I just have Yanni use his. Then I don't have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today.